how has nobody melted this fucking thing down? If it really is just made out of sharp edges, how has nobody gone, listen, I understand the imagery and the power and the propaganda, etc., right? And I'm alongside that. But I just, I'm sorry, it's made out of fucking knives. I'm not sitting on that. Go get me a lazy boy. There's Jojen and Mira. There's Bram and Rickon. And then there's Hodor. And then there's Osha, who's pretty much like some kind of school teacher looking after just his massive group of kids. There's a lot of justice that we'd like to see done, hopefully, in the next book. Fingers crossed. Hello, and welcome to the tenth and final uh, episode of Shark Live Royal. Not final one ever, but the final one about George R.R. Martin's A Clash of Kings. We've come a long way through this, I don't know, how many pages is it? About 900-page book. And uh, last time we were on the Battle of the Blackwater, and this last section is called Bala Mogulis. <laughs> so I'm Matt. I'm Dave. Hello. You realise what you've done, though, Matt, is you've taken the first step in an arms war there of how <laughs> how uh, dramatic one can sound when using a microphone like this. For example, Bala <laughs> Mogulis. <laughs> right okay if, you, if you're coming to us for the first time as we always say this is a, a podcast about books what we do is we split them down into a load of parts and then sort of give you a, a section to read each week and then we discuss that part of the book every week and this is our 10th part of uh, a clash of kings by george R. R. martin and uh dave it's uh it's been a long road but uh, we finally got to the end of book two. Ah, it's amazing. It seems like seems like only yesterday I was romping gleefully and innocently in the woods and fields of Westeros. Ned Stark was still alive. Yeah. Uh, you know, nobody had had any fucking shadow babies. Uh, happier times. You were exploring the north beyond the wall, not expecting to come across any kind of cookie monster zombies or anything yeah. like that. <sighs> anyway, we are here now, and, you know, we must press on. So, Valamogulis. Valamogulis, man. Uh, Do we know what that means, by the way? Because it it's like the it, greatest possible greeting I think I've heard ever. It, it means, um, I'm not sure what, it might be, I think it might be Old Valerian or something like that. Right. Um, but it means all men must die. <laughs> That's a crap greeting. Sorry, it just sounds like kind of Valamogulis. Put one fist in the air. Ave. Imagine greeting yeah. everybody with the words. Everybody dies. Hi. Yeah, I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a greeting. I think it's sort of the kind of thing you, um, you sort of maybe like put your hand against your breast and go valamogulus. Oh, um, like um, like uh, moritori te salutem. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Like that. yeah. Very nice. Yeah, good Latin. Thank you very much. Bosh. <laughs> Never even studied it. How about that? You know what that is? You know what that is? Gladiator. Hey, who says you need an education when you got a DVD player? <laughs> just, when you said gladiators, you meant gladiators. gladiators. The, uh, the thing with the guys in spandex. Which... <laughs> Did you ever see them speaking Latin, Latin to one? And you imagine Wolf being like kind of, a moa mas a is a munt. Caecilia says to inhort it. That's a very specific reference for um, anyone in England who did sort of year nine early Latin. <laughs> anyway, let's 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 get yeah, sorry. Let's focus. Get into this, shall focus. We? This is uh, the first chapter for today. Is a chapter about Daenerys, and um, she is still in Carth, if you remember, 
And um, the last we were, when we were last with her, she was escaping the house of the undying, and um, and with the help of her dragons. And it turns out since then she's become pretty unpopular in Carth. Before everyone quite liked her, but now they see her and the dragons as quite dangerous. Mm. And um, you really get a sense of the mood swinging against her now and she's wandering through the market trying to find some ships because she she wants to leave and she wants to make the next step towards getting back to westeros which is the whole point yeah um does this attack while she's uh, sort of at the port side there's a there's a failed assassination attempt on her um and it's this, these sorrowful men which we've spoken to before which are they're a, they're a guild of assassins which the guys the big their big thing is they say sorry before they kill you and um they try to use this sort of little scorpion in a box if you like to to kill her mm. and it doesn't work cuz she's saved by these two new characters one called Ariston Whitebeard who's this old bloke with a staff and another guy called Strong Belwus who's this massive eunuch um, who's a bit of a sort of a, a fighting machine. Yeah. Uh, what did you make of all this sort of first bit? Yeah, it's a great way of kind of making the Daenerys storyline, um, dare I say, a bit more interesting. Because, like, mm. it's been, it's you know, it's been this kind of long slog across the desert and then Karth and then this, like, fucking bad acid trip of a chapter where she's in the House of the Undying and ends up burning it to the ground sort of thing. Um and all of that is very well and good, but I was starting to feel like it was flagging a little bit. And then you come into this bit where um, you've got this kind of really, uh, really fascinating kind of new character dynamic of like somebody's trying to kill her for a start. That's exciting. Um, but mm. then you've got these two characters who prevent her from being killed, but towards whom, interestingly, Sejura doesn't seem to be too positive. You know what I mean? They They kind of turn yeah. up and they save her life. And his response is like, Oh, yeah, and who are you then? Yeah, and I think there are two things going on here with Sajora. One is that he is, he's, his character is he's naturally quite jealous anyway, isn't he? And I think he, he doesn't want anybody other than himself being sort of the key protector of Daenerys. He's very sort of, he very jealously guards her. Mm. Um, and also, he's got some shady links to Westeros. If you remember in the first book, he um he was actually working for um for King Robert. He was a spy, and and he sort of came to a, a sort of big moment in the match. You know when he saved Daenerys from being assassinated, yeah, 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 because he decided that he cared about her too much. So he's got this he's got this secret, which I think whenever someone appears from Westeros, he's he's <laughs> always in the back of his mind, sort of um. I wonder if they have any knowledge of my sort of shady background. And also the fact he used to be a slaver, so he's not exactly popular back home, is he? And all that could serve to undermine his authority in his new life. Yeah, that's very true. He's definitely a guy who has kind of fallen into, like, for all the hardship, one of the most, one of the most kind of honorable deals he could have hoped for. You know, he's the, Mm. the head of a Queen's Guard for somebody who's, who's, you know, got the strongest claim to the throne of Westeros. Um, mm, I also yeah. thought, yeah, that whole dynamic is quite subtle, and I could have done with it being a bit more, bit more strongly stated. This whole like, you know, the idea of Westeros, even though it's thousands and thousands of miles away at this point, um, being kind of 
you know, you can't escape your reputation. And that, that like link that links Daenerys to Westeros is really mm. important because otherwise this is now two whole books of this woman wandering around the desert having nothing to do with any of the other characters. <laughs> yeah, it does feel a bit like that sometimes, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really does. Yeah. Um, th- these two guys, Ariston Whitebeard and Strongbells, it turns out they've been sent by, do you remember, uh, Ilrio in the first book. It's the guy, it's the big fat merchant who Daenerys was sort of under the protection of at the very start of the first book. Yeah. He arranged the marriage with, um, with Khal Drogo. Yeah. And, um, they're basically been sent by Ilrio to, to protect her and bring her back to where he is in Pentos mm. to prepare for this invasion of Westeros. Mm. So, um, it's quite, quite neatly gives and gives Daenerys. Ilriel gives her a few ships as well to get her back. So yeah. we've got quite a convenient and neat way of, of moving her out of Carthner because she was kind of stuck before, wasn't she? Yeah, she was. Is it, this is a little bit deus ex machina, isn't it? She's just like, and yeah, a little ships. Bit. Also, how does he know where she is? Like, she's been lost mm. in the desert. She's been in the Dothraki Sea. She's <laughs> What's he doing yeah. sending in the cavalry now? You know? <laughs> Well, I suppose um, news about these dragons will be travelling, and oh, um, yeah, I suppose yeah, off the right back on. of that, news of where she is will be getting all around the all around the area. Yes, yes, you're absolutely um, correct. Next up is a chapter about Arya, and um, she is she is in Harrenhal still, and the if you remember, the Lannisters have been supplanted now by. The Starks, or more specifically the Boltons, mm. um, who are the bannermen for the Starks, and the this is one of those examples where you get the feeling that you know no side is particularly good in this war. Yeah. Um, you, you have the sort of casual um, rape and uh, humiliation of all these women who oh, yeah. have been sort of branded less than human for fraternising with the enemy, if you like. Yeah. And Arya has to walk past them every day as they sort of stand chained in the yard, just waiting to be raped by somebody else. Um, and Arya pretty much sort of, she's remembering, she's still only a little girl. She sort of blocks that out fairly easily, it seems. And when, um, a woman, um, sort of has this argument with it, so an old woman has an argument with her over her allegiance, she sort of fights her off as well. She's become this really tough, um, and uh, very different characters. She, she always had this independent streak in Arya, but now yeah. you get the feeling she's just closing in on herself, isn't she? And becoming this really tough individual. Yeah, age nine as well, or whatever she is. Uh, mm. She's definitely been through it. And given given the alternative, you know, she she can either collapse or she can get hard as a diamond. You know, you want to see hard as a diamond, but still kind of sad. You know, all of this mm. all of this trauma starting to show itself in in how she kind of. Um, deals with people around her and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. And it's interesting what Gendry says to her when, um, you know, <laughs> when she chats to him about sort of the fact that she took the, you know, that, that she helped take the castle back mm. um, for the Starks. And um, Gendry sort of points out that life for most people is worse under the Boltons than it was under the Lannisters. Yeah. And, um, you know, <laughs> and that's yeah. the only thing that matters to him and most people. Yeah. So it's not exactly like she's done them a massive favour. Yeah. 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 Let's talk about Roose Bolton for a minute because Yeah. You mean this, you mean this... your man, Roose Bolton. <laughs> I'm not letting you off that vision. <laughs> because um in this in this bit, um, he is holding court in his room. Um 
and is surrounded by these very tough and dangerous captains who all sort of serve him. Mm. And uh, they're having this sort of war council. And he is lying naked on his bed with covered in leeches <laughs> because that's sort of the treatment that he likes. Um, yeah, and he, he just sort of mumbles these contributions to the discussions every so often. Mm. And even though he speaks really quietly, um, the, re- the response is that everyone around him is quite hushed and they talk quite quietly as well. Mm. And one, obviously, this is really weird and he, he sort of comes across like some kind of gothic villain or gothic <laughs> monster. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is just that it really gives you an, an idea of the sheer influence and gravity of the guy because mm. there are all these people who um, are completely sort of subservient to him despite and, and it's like he's almost going out of his way to look daft in front of them and daring them to to yeah. say something about it and I just thought I, I really enjoyed this this part of the book oh I thought it was definitely revealing and that's really necessary because actually we've heard a lot about Roose Bolton second hand but we've never really seen the way he acts so you do learn mm. a lot about him here. Like he's doesn't he also say that he's hairless? Like he's this yeah, sort of yeah. this like Lord of War with no body hair who is kind of covered in leeches and talks in an extremely soft voice. And it's just mm. it's odd. And um I yeah. don't know whether this makes him more or less imposing, because I'm still not letting him off the hook of the fact that he has for his sign in the world a flayed man. Like a man with all his <laughs> skin pulled off, right? Yeah. So this could just be really creepy. You know how, like, a, like you know, kind of a, a a villain in a movie can be a lot worse if he talks softly than if he's killing people in a way. Like the scene at the mm. start of Inglorious Bastards. Like yeah. the thing that makes that first scene so awful is the fact that the Nazi is charming and urbane and quiet, and then kills mm. everybody. And right. there's, a, I think, there's a parallel here with that, you know. Yeah, um, although, I mean, charming wouldn't be a word I'd describe for, I'd use for Roos. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, I mean, I mean, it's interesting. It's just, I think part of the reason that he's, he can do this kind of thing is just how, um, how ruthless he is and mm. how, um, compared, even, even by the standards of this time, I mean, like you say, he's got a flayed man as a sigil for a start. And there's a bit later on where um, Aya speaks to him and asks if he's going to take her with him. Mm. And the fact that she even asks him a question is, um, it, it sort of makes her, makes even Aya quite frightened mm. because his response is sort of, you know, I don't normally suffer people to ask me questions. And then she asks him another one. And he just casually threatens to have a tongue ripped out. Yeah. And it's, he, do, he doesn't say it angrily. He, do, he just says it completely flatly. And Aya, who's not the most believing of people, um, immediately believes that he would do that in an instant. Yeah. And I think that is, that is where his sort of power comes from, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It is exactly that. Cause he's got the reputation, you know, to talk softly and carry a big stick. Or in his case, talk very softly and have a picture of a man with no skin. <laughs> yeah. Um this I mean <laughs> unsurprisingly um the guy the the guy's most closest to a maester who's knocking around here in Roose Bolton's court is this guy called Kyburn who isn't uh, he used to be a maester and isn't any longer and um we just we don't know any major details apart from the fact that he was kind of dismissed for dabbling in necromancy. 
And um, and you think if that guy's going to find service anywhere, it's probably going to be with this <laughs> this bloke who likes to leech himself every night. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, do you reckon he put out an advert? Um, I need a maester, <laughs> but it's very important that I maintain my image as a softly spoken, utterly terrifying psychopath. So, <laughs> have you been trained as a maester, but then done something seriously morally questionable, such as try to talk to the dead through black magic? Call Bruce Bolton, <laughs> 0100 Freaky Fella. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, there's one one tactical thing that Bruce Bolton does here is he um, sends the Tollhearts and the Glovers off to a place called Duskendale, which is a, a particularly rich part of, of the Riverlands, mm. um, basically just to go and pillage because they've um, they've had a few sacrifices so far. I think the Toll Hearts have lost one or two people. The Glovers have lost a couple as well. Mm. And he's ba- it's basically a reward for their sort of service. You know, go and fill your boots in Duskendale, basically. Yeah. Um, which is, I mean, which is, again, is an interesting... Um, there's no tactical purpose for it other than just looting. Yeah. And again, it just, just sort of knocks the shine off the Starks a bit, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And you do wonder how much Rob knows about this and how much he would condone. But at the same time, am I just being naive? Is this just the way warfare is conducted? You know, is this how people mm. get paid? Um, yeah. Cause if so, it seems to me like an astonishingly short sighted way of getting paid. Go, go kill all those people over there. No, I'm sure it won't do any damage to our ability to win the propaganda war. Carry on. <laughs> I suppose as far as the Northmen are concerned, if you're looking at it from a completely ruthless perspective, they're going to come down, do a bit of pillaging, and then they'll be back off up north, so I don't really care what people think of them down here. Well, I suppose that's true. Yeah. Bearing in mind this sort of threat to have eyes tongue out, mm. which she utterly believed, mm. um, Within a couple of pages, she is um, planning an escape from Harrenhal, which is extremely dangerous. And um, and in the end, she gets Hot Pie and Gendry sort of with her. Yeah. She steals a few horses, steals a map and um, and some swords as well. Uh, I think the map's from Bruce Bolton's own chambers, so it couldn't be even. It couldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> the most the most blatantly disrespectful thing you could do. <laughs> um, and then in order to get out, there's a a Northman sort of guarding a gate, mm. which Aya sort of goes up to. Just bearing in mind, this is a 10-year-old girl. Yeah. And um, sort of pretends to drop a coin, which the guard bends down to pick up, and she <laughs> slits his throat and says the words, Valamogulis. Ooh. Now, that for me is the moment where this goes from kind of bloody but plucky behavior to being really creepy Bride of Chucky territory. How about you? <laughs> yeah, it's one of two things. Um, it depends how um, sort of how carefully you're thinking about this. I think sort of just sort of on one level as you're reading through it as a sort of general, you know, flying through the pages. This is like, oh yeah, kick ass, great, you know. Yeah. Um, this is a, a, a hero, um, a heroine, actually, you know, winning and getting things done and saving people and getting out of a dangerous place. Um, but yeah, the more you think about it, the more it seems like some kind of scene in a horror film mm. when you think about how young she is. Yeah. And um and just the kind of the kind of scene that would unfold in front of you. I mean it's interesting in the in the series, they shy away from this. Mm. They change it so Jake and Hagar are still knocking around, the assassin, and he kills the guards so they can escape. Mm. And I think that's probably because when you actually think about this scene and imagine it how it would look 
it would be just a bit too disturbing even for an HBO series. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And it really is. And what's interesting here is I noticed that, like, um, whenever it was, a few chapters back, um, when John John Snow went out on his big ranging up north and it says he's never he'd never killed anybody before. Mm. And you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Despite all this training and stuff, he still is only 14 years old. So, all right, kind of fine, fair enough. Shortly afterwards, he kills somebody. And he's, like, just been inducted into this, the, the legion of ultimate badasses, the Black, mm. the black uh, the Night's Watch. Um, so he's 14. And then here's his nine-year-old half-sister, like, doing mm. the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Creepy. Uh, the next chapter is about Sansa, mm. and she's in the throne room in King's Landing as a Tywin Lannister makes his grand entrance. Um, only I Tywin would do, would yeah. As uh, everybody else, sort of as we've seen so far in this book, when they come into the throne room, they sort of sort of wander in quite sort of you know meekly, get up to the front and sort of kneel before the king. Uh, Tywin enters on a horse, um, <laughs> which also you know, it's just a bit of extra detail, promptly shits in the throne room. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, it just kind of sums up the, um, the power of the guy, isn't it? Cause yeah. he's basically making a statement that I, you know, Joffrey's my, uh, you know, Joffrey might be my nephew, but, um, I'm the guy who's pulling the strings now. Yeah. 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 Um, I also thought it was a lovely little, little scene acting out like the, the reality of power in a place like this, you know, where you've mm. got on the one hand, you've got massive, impressive, not just a horse, but a destroyer. And he's got yeah. like plated in fucking red steel. And he's got, you know, badass one written on his number plate or what I don't know. And, <laughs> and then, and then he comes in and just like, there's not even a pause. There's not even a, an impressed silence. It just gallops up and as part of the same action takes a massive dump on the steps in front of the seat of power. <laughs> and uh, and we, I think we can say that it's nothing less than the, uh, than the Iron Throne deserves. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, he is obviously put into a very high position because of his... He's getting all the credit for saving King's Landing. Mm. Him and um, this house called the Tyrells, who, as you remember, used to back Renly and have now come over to the Lannister side... And they um, they get a lot of uh, reward as well. So the the head of that house called Mace Tyrell gets a seat on the council. Mm. Um, the the sort of the, the the young fighter that we've met before called Sir Loras Tyrell um, is given granted his request to serve in the King's Guard. Mm. And um, Marjorie Tyrell, who's the sort of eldest daughter in the house, is matched to marry. Joffrey, so to become the future queen. There we go. Which obviously has repercussions for Sansa, who's who's quietly delighted that she won't have to marry Joffrey anymore. Yeah, it's a masterpiece of self-control, though, isn't it? That she doesn't just leap up in the air and go, yes, yes, in your <laughs> face, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. What I also love about it is how it's so hammy with how uh, Joffrey manages to get into it. It's all sort of pre-planned. Yeah, yeah. And he keeps sort of... I mean, there's a bit where he goes, oh, I would love to grant the request, but I'm already... I'm already pledged to somebody else. And then 
somebody gets up and says, oh, but you don't, you know, that'll be okay. And then he goes, oh, but I'm still really worried about the religious aspect. And then it just so happens that the high septum gets up and goes, the religious aspect's absolutely fine. And then he goes, oh, in that case, maybe I can do it. And it's just, I thought it was really funny how it was all played it out. It is. And it makes you think, doesn't it, of like the kind of um, solemn ceremonies that make up the practice of the British state. And in the same way, yeah. how po-facedly ridiculous they are. <laughs> yeah. Um, and obviously, when we, while we're on the subject of rewards, um, around about, they say, 600 new knights are made. And these are various people who've, who've sort of performed great feats of bravery during the battle. Mm. And they're all, they're, there's this ceremony which they have to all go through to be knighted. And they have to be knighted by a member of the King's Guard. And I think there are only three or four of them left at this stage. Oh, yeah. Um, because of desertions and deaths. So it takes, it's, it says that it takes pretty much all day for them to, <laughs> so the, these poor King's Guard guys are just standing on the, on the feet all morning. Yeah. You know, knighting people. And, and, um, and at every step yeah. thinking, I imagined it would be more glamorous than this. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And the uh, Littlefinger gets a reward as well, because obviously he's played an important part, because he negotiated this switch to get the tools on side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he gets gets Harrenhal, which is a very rich area, which used to be Janos Slint's very briefly. And it's known as this cursed seat, because nobody holds it for long. Yeah. And you just wonder what that means for... Littlefinger's prospects in the future. You wouldn't cry too many tears, though, would you, if if Littlefinger became yet another victim of the myth of Harrenhal? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I tell you what, it was interesting to me though, actually, in comparison to the TV series, is that Littlefinger really hasn't featured very much. Like he was just sort of sent off about half a book ago to go and have this conversation, and yeah, and he left. yeah, and um, whereas in the TV series, he's always right there, being slimy and insidious and always there and always undermining the people that you want to win whereas in this yeah. he just disappeared for half a book so for all that i've got a bit pissed off with sort of like you know the kind of um uh various treatment of all the characters that i like it's undeniable that there's been a lot less little finger in this than there is in the tv series and that's a good thing yeah it's interesting I'm, i wonder if that is a game we've talked about this before um just a problem that George Martin had because of his POV characters. He didn't have anybody mm. there to see to, to see Littlefinger make this negotiation. Mm. Um, yeah, but but again, it's not as if you can't add more POV characters, is it? You know, like I, I mean, if mm. if it's if it's an interesting scene for you to tell, you're going to find a way to tell it. So we have to assume that he chose not to do it because it wasn't going to be terribly interesting or whatever. And I'm fine yeah, with that because yeah. it keeps Peter Baelish out of my consciousness, and that's a good thing. <laughs> Uh, in terms of the winners and losers of this battle, um, the, it turns out that Lancel Lannister, do you remember the guy who, um, came into the throne room going, no battle is lost. <laughs> um, and, and Tyrion, uh, they both said to be dying. Um, they they've both been wounded really grievously. Tyrion. And it doesn't dying. look like they're going to survive. Yeah. Again, Which never trust a... George Martin. Never. <laughs> yeah. Never. Yeah. And some more losers. These prisoners are brought in. People who were, who weren't actually killed but lost the battle. Mm. Um, can't be that many of them. And um, if they, if they sort of effectively say sorry and pledge allegiance to Joffrey, then they're allowed to leave. Mm. But there's this hardcore group who, I mean, some of them are, I think are religious fanatics for yeah. on Stannis's side, yeah. who just will refuse to 
to bend the knee, if you like. Mm. And one of them um, is shouting insults at Joffrey. And Joffrey gets so agitated that he sort of slides his hand along the throne and cuts him, cuts his hand open. And this is a, this is seen as evidence by the, the prisoners yeah. that he isn't, the, he isn't the proper king. He says he, the prisoner shouts, you know, even the throne denies him. He's not yeah. the true king. Yeah. Great scene, isn't it? And I have to say, you were mm. waiting for this to happen, weren't you? Both for Joffrey to be upstaged and also for there to be some kind of consequence to having a throne made out of swords. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how has everybody else been sitting on this thinking, ah, oh, good, good idea. <laughs> How has nobody melted this fucking thing down? If it really is just made out of sharp edges, how has nobody gone, listen, I understand the imagery and the power and the propaganda, etc., right? And I'm alongside that. But I just, I'm sorry, it's made out of fucking knives. I'm not sitting on that. Go get me a lazy well, it boy. Is, it is said that um, um, the old the old Mad King, Eris, um, had scabs all over his hands because he was constantly getting cuts from the throne. And um, and I think it just, it, and that that's all built into this legend that, um, the throne almost partly decides whether there's a good king on it or not uh, as well. And if you're getting cut by it, yeah. you're um, you're sort of you're shown to be losing your power, which is which is a very strange thing. It's almost imagining the throne has a has a life and mind of its own. <laughs> it's sort of like a grown up version of the Sorting Hat from Harry Potter, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> um. So uh, Sansa is obviously very happy that she's avoided this. Uh, this this marriage to Joffrey, but later on she meets Sir Don Tostrom, this guy who's got putting this plan in place to get her out of the city, mm. and he says that she um, she needs to sort of t- temper her sort of joy a bit because the plan Joffrey has this plan to he's basically going to um, rape her anyway, um, yeah. and he's going to sort of have a different marriage, but it doesn't mean he's going to leave her alone. Mm. But Dantos says, don't worry, I'm still going to get you out of the castle. And the plan is that um, when Joffrey has this wedding to Marjorie, on that day, Sansa's going to somehow get broken out mm. of the place. The other thing is, San- uh, so Dantos gives Sansa this hairnet to wear at the at the wedding um, and sort of, and says, you know, this is, I think it's just kind of like a gift um, but it just seemed a bit odd in yeah. the middle of this big plot to get her out of there. But and anyway. it's something nice for your hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you make of um, of Sedontos in this? Because we've been going along with this this bizarre charade based entirely on the fact that it's a bit like a fairy tale. Um, mm. That like that he can help, but I mean, can he? How on earth is he going to? He's a fucking jester. Like mm. at the start of this chapter, there is there is a thing about like he's mentioned as this Moon Boy and Sedontos, and they're both in like gleaming patchwork, jangly bell whatevers, and it's like, are, are you serious? Like, mm. how is how are you genuinely pinning all of your hopes on this guy? What do you think? Yeah, it seems it seems like an unlikely person to, to manage to do something like that. But I mean, we've just seen a 10 year old girl escape from a castle, so it's not impossible. <laughs> well, that's very uh, true. Yeah. And I suppose it's, I suppose they're, they're relying on the, on the fact that nobody suspects the jester, you know, everyone just ignores him. Yeah. Well, <laughs> because that's they don't think true. he's even capable of thought. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's go. Oh, speaking of people trapped in castles, Theon Winterfell is now he's, he's in Winterfell. He's got about, I think about, 
20 guardsmen trying to hold the castle. And now it's under siege because uh, Sir Roderick, good old badass grandpa Sir Roderick, has routed the, the force that was surrounding uh, Torrent Square. And now he's marched on Winterfell with uh, this big Stark force to, to take the castle back, to take the, the town and castle back. You celebrate, don't you? You're just sort yeah, of like, it's... come on, Sir Roderick as well. Sir Roderick is just sort of like a, so clearly a fantastic character. Yeah, so Theon's trapped. It doesn't seem like there's any way out. Um, the castle's surrounded. And uh, Theon goes into the yard and he lines up his sort of his men in front of him. And he draws a line in the dirt with his sword and says, if you want to, st- if you want to leave, leave. But if you want to stay and hold the castle with me, cross the line and finally I mean after a while I don't look like anyone's going to do it at first and then about 17 I think yeah. Iron Men decide to stay with him yeah. and um, one of them called Black Lauren um, says that he'll hold the drawbridge and Theon realises that these these guys who are staying are staying because they want to have some kind of legendary death yeah. nobody believes that this is going to end well yeah. um, and it just shows that the state that Theon's got himself into now in the hopeless situation. Yeah, and it really is, isn't it? And I don't know about you, but there was a bit of me that was quite sad about that for saying that I really don't like Theon. There's just... Because mm. it was so clearly a stupid thing to do from the very, very beginning, there isn't a sense of seeing somebody who's been like arrogantly proud and successful come tumbling down. There's just somebody who's been utterly delusional be revealed mm. in their delusiveness. So yeah. it's kind of that I was quite sad about this. There wasn't a lot of like, yeah, fucking have that. It was more like, oh, oh yeah. yeah, he's gonna die. Yeah, and I think there's um there's a lot of sadness in this. There's this meeting um in the in the village square. So so the the Stark army is now sort of in the village and surrounding the castle. Mm. And to, uh, Theon rides out to sort of. Harley with Sir Roderick and Clay, so Clay Kerwin's there. Do you remember that the young lad who was Bran's friend, who's effectively the sort of the leader of of the castle down the road now, the Kerwins. Mm. And there's a real sadness in this meeting because Sir Roderick is obviously no, has nothing but contempt for Theon now, and says that he wished that instead of training him with a sword, he'd killed him with one yeah. when he was younger. Yeah. And Theon, Theon's responses are all quite, um, you know, there's still the bravado and the arrogance in what he's saying, but you can see deep down that he's, he's once again, as he did when, when, um, when his sister was there thinking sort of, how have I come to this? Yeah. And he ends up putting Sir Roderick's daughter sort of in a noose on, on the, um, on the castle walls, threatening to kill her if the if Sir Roderick storms the castle, and it's just it's just these these lengths that Theon's been pushed to now, yeah. and just there is a bit of a sad. I mean, it's it's all don't get me wrong, it's all his fault. Yeah, he didn't need yeah, to he's do getting this. everything he deserves. Yeah, but um, and then you see sort of Sir Roderick have to make that terrible choice as well, and it's just all. Even though you, even though you want to be sort of cheering, thinking this is, you know, it's finally something good for the Starks happening. Yeah, um, it's all sort of in this veil of melancholy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. And um, it's, it's such a slow hand clap moment, isn't it? When he brings out Sir Roderick's daughter and puts her on the thing with a noose around it, you're just like, oh, congratulations! This is <laughs> there's no there's no tension in it. There's just there's just this sort of, yep, yeah, born a fuckwit. Dire fuckwit, Theon Greyjoy, and his poor life choices. <laughs> yeah. 
And you ju- you just wonder. I I thought when I was reading this first time in the back of my mind, um, might that be enough just to put off Sir Roderick for long enough because he obviously is his is his is his daughter. Yeah, but for long enough but, to do what? Exactly. I suppose that's that's the case. And he, you know, there's nothing there's nothing else to be done, is it? He's trapped, Sir Roderick. He's got to he's got to take this castle back. He's the Castilian. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Like I mean, um, there's no choice for him. Um, no. well, yeah, hence his his anguish at seeing his daughter's life held up for held up for ransom at that moment, you know. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, so Theon returns to the castle and he spends a very lonely night, um, sort of alone with his thoughts and his self pity. Mm. And he speaks to Maester Lewin, and Lewin offers him a way out, which is he says, yield the castle and offer to take the black, offer to go to the Night's Watch. Mm. And um, he believes that that request will be granted. Yeah. And Theon sort of thinks about it, and to be honest, He's just about ready to to go along with that, isn't he? Yeah. Um, he's thinking that he could actually. I think there's a there's a line where he says, you know, I I could I could be someone up there. I could make yeah. something of myself and yeah. put some things right. And it seems that this there's this sudden sort of flicker of a chance of redemption. Mm. And then it all changes because this this news comes across that there's this that there's this fight outside the walls. Mm. And it looks like the Boltons or a Bolton army mm. is fighting the um, is fighting the, the the Stark army, and it's it's all very confused. Mm. It is, and, and you're like, yeah. What did you think? Well, you're like, what the fuck? Like <laughs> for all that <laughs> yeah. you've seen, uh, Bruce Bolton be a creepy motherfucker, and for all you've been like, I don't trust these people. This is quite a spectacular betrayal, isn't it? To sort of sweep through yeah. and, and send your people to attack your own army in order to claim Winterfell. And it's just, it's this really interesting thing, isn't it? Where you have a strong sense of like everything is falling apart. You know, you started off with this one big army in the north. The banners have been called. Everybody's out for war, but Rob just doesn't have the kind of reach to allow him mm. to control people like Roose Bolton. And once you sent Roose Bolton off to do something, he'll just do whatever he likes for as long as he likes until you end up having to fight him as well. And so now, that's exactly now, what is, happens here. Is this Roose Bolton though? Cause it's, you, you could make a, you could make a, you could make a point that it's not really anything to, to do with him at the moment. He's got this, it's, let, let, let's, let's sort of, let's just push on through to find, to talk about what we know right, right. from what happens here. Right. You can make your argument in turn- favour of Bruce Bolton if you like. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- th- this guy turns up um, and he's got these bodies in sacks. He's got Leobald Tolhart. He's got Clay Kerwin who's taken a, some kind of arrow to his face, I think. Yeah. And um, I mean, this is very sort of Sir Roderick, the badass grandpa has met his end here. Um, he's lost. He's lost half an arm, and yeah. he's been obviously been killed. Yeah. Um, and it turns out that this the guy who's done it, this mysterious sa- savior, is okay. Do you remember Reek? I do. The uh, the smelly little servant yeah. who Theon sent off to to the Bolton lands in a vague, desperate attempt to get some men on his side. Yeah. It turns out that guy was never actually Reek. He was actually Ramsay Snow in disguise. So the bastard of Bolton, who we all thought was dead, yeah. had just disguised himself as Reek. Oh, hence hence his enthusiasm for flaying people way back. Do you remember that? There you go, yeah. 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 And so he's ridden off, got this army together. Remember, he was raising armies to, to try and take um, extra castles and stuff 
and re- running a mock a while back, and Sir Roderick had to go and sort him out. Mm. And he's come back now with the remnants of this army and, and, and you know, attacked Sir Roderick again. And he says, um, basically, Sir Roderick rode out to meet him as he, as he came as a friend, offered out his hand to shake it, and he took the, took the arm off. And that, and, and then obviously the, that's how the tide of the battle turned because Sir Roderick had the numbers, but they lost their commander and then they, yeah. they weren't expecting this attack. So you can see how it all went wrong for them. Yeah. Um, so look, it's it, there's that betrayal, and then Theon opens the gates to let to let these people in, and um, in the end, the, the Boltons end up killing all the Iron Men as well, and take the castle for themselves. In fact, they don't even take the castle; do they? they just put it to the torch. Yeah, they're just riding into. Yeah, and Th- Theon gets like smacked across the, the face. A sort of almost knocks unconscious, and the last thing he sees is his, remember his horse, which he, it was his sort of pride and joy, yeah. and the thing that singled him out from all the others. And that, the horse is sort of a fire and screaming and agony, and that's as he sort of blacks out. Wow. And it's sort of like such a, it's a, so much happens in this chapter, doesn't it? Yeah. And it's such a dramatic, um, unraveling, as you'd like you say, of, of everything that we kind of understood about what was going on in the North. Yeah. And it's, so again, once again, George Martin takes the plot, puts it in a bag and shakes it. And it's just, mm. it's just mental. This like, and to be honest with you, I do think this is the Boltons. Like, I think, I think like the bastard of Bolton couldn't possibly have this sort of influence and wouldn't try this sort of thing if it wasn't, if he wasn't trying to be part of a bigger plan. Right. Mm. And, and in this context, um, Roose Bolton's thing before about when, when his bastard apparently died of being utterly pitiless and being like bad blood will show itself. He deserved to die sort of thing. That now looks mm. more than a little bit suspect, doesn't it? It's like, Oh, has he died? Good heavens. Gracious me. What a twat he was. <laughs> I've got nothing to do with him and no mistake. You know, <laughs> so, 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 so you think the, the grand plan yeah. from Roose Bolton here was he told his bastard to, um, almost get caught. Then disguise himself as his smelly little servant, assume that they won't kill him, and then ride to Winterfell, ingratiate yourself with Theon, and then somehow manage to be told to go off to find some men and be released by him. Go off, somehow manage to get the, um, <laughs> get the drop on to Roderick <laughs> and friends, and then take the castle and then put it to the torch for, for reasons. Yes. And, uh, that is exactly what I'm saying. But I um, think okay. I, I think <laughs> I think think at this point, surely not. Come on. No, 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 no. But I think um, it's very, very clear that from moment one, Ruth Bolton has been the kind of that has been the kind of person where everybody's like, well, you can't do without him, but you don't really want much to do with him. And yeah. Um, and it, this whole thing, I mean, obviously the way it's played out was very up in the air, but then again, why does he care if his bastard dies? You know what I mean? I suspect that the, what he said before had, an, had a grain of truth in it, but he's still going to be willing to use this apparently crazy person who subscribes very closely to the Bolton way of doing things. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. you could be right. It could be a little bit far-fetched, but uh, if you're Ruse Bolton, then, you know, what have you got to lose? Yeah, yeah, fine. Do whatever you like. If you can take Winterfell, fucking bang on. What if the, what if his bastard is almost the same as Theon Greyjoy in that he's trying to, he's trying to get the approval of an extremely hostile father figure and he's just better at it than Theon is? Yeah, I think, I think you're onto something there. I think there's, there's an argument 
either way. Yeah, okay. Um, I, I think your argument is is stronger than mine, but I'm still... Ooh. I think you're absolutely right with the bastard of Bolton. I think he is... He's trying to impress Dad, mm. and he's just this sort of loose guy. He's <laughs> just going off on yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he knows enough about his dad that he's not going to be particularly upset if he's breaking oaths left, right, and centre in the north. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's move on to uh, the next chapter. About Let's leave that there. Move on to the next chapter about Tyrion. As we heard, people believe that Tyrion is dying, and he is pretty much on his deathbed here. Um, he's slipping in and out of consciousness. There's this sort of Part of his dreams are this sort of post-apocalyptic scene of the devastation caused by the battle. And there's the, he sees the, the silent sisters who are these kind of like nuns who just deal with the dead mm. going amongst the, the bodies of the, of the dead, you know, the, the dead fighters in this battle. Um, it, that, that interweaves with, some bits of consciousness where people are standing over him in his bed. There's also this memory of him and Dramatisha, who was, oh, who was this? Yeah, um, the, the... Th- th- this is this is the girl that he fell in love with and married, and sort of ran off with for about a, a week before they were found. And it was actually um, this big plot. So the, his meeting with this girl called Taisha was all arranged by Jamie, and she was actually a a, a prostitute. And she ended, it ended very badly for her because Tywin got wind of it all and ended up punishing her in horrific fashion. Mm. Um, and he's, mem- he's just remembering how happy he was with her. Yeah. Um, it turns out he's, he's getting milk of the poppy, which is this sort of drug which keeps you asleep yeah. um, to sort of help deal with his pain. But also he, he fears this is just to keep him... Um, unconscious and to sort of slowly kill him. So he, he does, he pretty much fights his way back to consciousness and almost fights with the, the physician or the maester who's tending him yeah. to, to, to try and, to try and get back in the game, if you like. Yeah. And it's, it, it, I, I love this because this is all he's got, isn't it? Is his, is his kind of will to succeed or his will to to change things for himself because nobody else is going to do it for him. I just think this is this is like on the one hand it's heartbreaking because you've seen Tyrion really man up and basically win this battle for the Lannisters as somebody who can barely walk. He's you know led a charge out of the city and he's inspired a group of knights who should know better into turning around and going back out and and giving their all and it's great. And then he gets attacked by somebody on his own side because his sister hates his sister who hides inside hates him and then um he blacks out and then the next time we see him he comes round and he's in the midst of horrifying fever dreams he's being drugged to hell and um and half his nose has been chopped off and everybody's congratulating his father on being the man who won the battle so i mean so you kind of you've got that tension which presumably is not going to get resolved during this novel another george martin specialty leaving you on a horrible hanging cliff edge <laughs> you know, until the next book comes along. I think the the amazing thing is here that it's when you've been wounded like that, I'd imagine, in a battle, it's it's hard enough to survive and to come back, you know. Um but it seems like he's got that fight on his hands to actually beat his 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 wounds and his and recover. And at the same time he's got to also, you know, beat the the per- person treating him because he's under the impression that that guy's trying to keep him unconscious as well yeah. and slowly and slowly 
make sure he doesn't recover from his wounds. So he's almost fighting on two fronts, and it's this monumental effort to actually regain consciousness and get back in, like get back in the game, if you like. Yeah. Um, and and that is it. Just it, once again, it just shows the determination and the sort of wherewithal of, of Tyrion to to actually survive. He's a real survivor, isn't he? He really is. Yeah, he's absolutely brilliant. I love it. He, when he finally wakes up, he has a look at himself in the mirror, and three quarters of his nose is gone. So, Mandon Moore effectively chopped his nose off. Bloody hell! Um, which is weird because in the series they, they they don't go that far. He just has a big <laughs> scar on his face. Yeah. I think probably because it just looks too strange to have a, an actor without a nose. And yeah. bearing in mind also the prosthetics that you know. Uh, who's it? Oh, uh, Peter Dinklage would have to go through hours and hours of makeup every every day. Yeah, um, to appear not to have a nose. But yeah, it's just worth remembering that um, when we see we see Tyrion for the rest of sort of his time in this uh, uh, as a character that he he only has like a quarter of a nose now, um, so he looks even more strange and grotesque than he uh, than he did before. Yeah, and uh, it's exactly the kind of thing you can do in a book, isn't it? Because you say it once and then you forget it, and it's all about what he says. And but in a TV series, every shot you're thinking about it. Um, I tell you what, actually, this is this is an awful thing to think, but it made me think that it actually compromises his voice, which is basically his only resource, isn't it? Because mm, um, yeah. it must make him sound really stupid. You know, he must yeah. be kind of trying to use these witty put-downs, but with this kind of extremely kind of sinus-sounding voice. Um, I wonder if that's going to be a thing, if that's going to be sort of milked for the comedy at any point. Yeah, possibly, yeah. Um, there's also, he, he speaks to Podrick Payne, who's the only guy who's still around him who he truly trusts, mm. um, about what happened in the battle. And once again, we hear this rumour about Renly slaying people left, right and centre. Oh, zombie Renly. Zombie Renly, yeah. I, ca- I can't uh, believe this. Can you? I mean, are you are you sort of on board with this, or is this just another silly rumour, do you think? Well, it, it seems to be something that isn't going to be resolved in this book. Well, isn't resolved in this book, is it? So hopefully we get some kind of, some kind of clue later on. Mm. But it does seem, even for this world, a bit far-fetched to have Renly come back to life. But, um, I mean, it's clearly yeah. what a lot of people believe. Um, I think we'll, we'll probably get the definitive answer when, you know, he speaks to when we hear from Tyrion, when we hear from Tywin, or from someone else who was involved on that side of the river, maybe even Stannis. Mm. Um, but we shall see. No, we will. Next up is John. Okay, it's bad times in, north of the Wall. This is John and Corin Halfhand are on the run. If you remember, John's group was was on the run last time we saw them because uh, the wildlings had got sight of them through this sort of eagle it seemed mm. and we're giving chase mm. um, John sort of is sitting by a campfire uh, or has been told to make a fire by coin Halfhand and he think he sees this as a signal that the end is near yeah. because um, they, obviously Corin doesn't care anymore about being seen now Yeah. Um, John sort of remembers what's happened sort of since we last left him mm. where um this this bald guy Eben was was sent off on a horse to to make as as quickly as he could towards towards uh, the fist of the first men to warn Mormons about this advancing army mm. um and then Stone Snake, who was the other sort of guy who was left, has been told to sort of climb over the rough terrain to try and get away that that way and Corin and and John are continuing to sort of make their own way back and try and escape the 
the attentions of the wildlings. Um, Corin really comes across it. John, I think, says that Corin's not the best person to be stuck in this situation with because he's very dour and quiet and um, John feels even more alone I suppose than he would have been with many of the other brothers of the Night's Watch which mm. is interesting an interesting character trait about Corin and just fleshes him out a bit more yeah he's not not a sparkling conversationalist is he <laughs> no although the thing he does say to John is if they get caught uh, John has to yield and basically go over to the wildling side and operate as a spy, which again raises the stakes. This is such a perfect cliffhanger, isn't it? it it's like, because, I mean, John kind of goes along with this, but he's clearly uncomfortable with the idea. <laughs> this is 15-year-old going, oh, yeah, okay, spying. Yeah, that's something that I've been prepared for by waving a sword around. Um, can definitely do that. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and it's clearly not going to get resolved during this book, so it's a real setup for the next book, and I'm so interested to see how this plays out. Because we haven't yeah. seen the wildlings yet. No. We don't know no, what exactly. they're like. We don't know how they interact. All we know is that they they try to kidnap, uh, a couple of wildlings try to kidnap Bran um, mm. in the forest way back. And then um, there's, a, there's a sort of captured wildling who's looking after Bran and Rickon. Yeah. But we've, those yeah. are individuals. We haven't got an idea of what this army's all about up north, and Mance Raider particularly. Very interesting. So, yeah, um, so yeah I, I, I'm, I'm intrigued. Now, it looks for a while that um, they might actually, after all, get away. They find this secret waterfall, um, which has got a, a sort of a, a tunnel running through the mountain, which might be a way of throwing off the, the wildlings and various other sort of bits and pieces. I think they, they leave the campfire and double back around it to, to sort of put off the wildlings as well. But mm. it's all for nothing because in the end they they come to the they come to the the entrance to this cave or the exit of this cave and the eagle's there again. So they're still being tracked. Yeah. And they decide to make this last stand. I, I thought just an interesting little aside, um Corin fights with his left hand now because he'd lost his, his right hand in a battle oh, or lost half of his yeah, right hand exactly yeah and it's just interesting that it, apparently he fights better than he ever did before now so um, you know it, it's sort of a it just shows again the resilience of this guy and just adds to his legend I suppose so um, the, the wildlings finally do make an appearance and John and Corin are preparing to die if you mm. like Um there's this guy who's leading this wildling raiding party called, depending on whether you like him or not, the Lord of Bones or Rattleshirt. And it's this guy <laughs> clad entirely in armour made from the bones of his enemies. And it obviously it rattles wherever he goes. It's just a really surreal... It's, quite, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty cool character trait, but it's a bit surreal as well, isn't it? I'll tell you what it made me think of is... Um, do you remember that bit in The Simpsons... Um, where you've got that, that disco guy, disco stew likes disco music. <laughs> um, yeah. It just really made me think it's like a gothic version of disco stew from The Simpsons. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Rattleshirt empties this sack in front of, uh, in front of Corin and John, and it's got Eben's head in it. So they, they've, they've caught Eben and killed him. And yeah. uh, Co- Corin quietly says to John during this exchange remember your orders which mm. John takes as a, a, a sort of a, an instruction to 
to turn to turn his cloak to to yield, yeah. which John does. Yeah. And Corin sort of responds quite very loudly, as I always expected this of of yeah, a bastard. Of a bastard, yeah, yeah. It turns out Egret, who John sort of let go, is amongst this party. She yeah. speaks up for him, um, and she also <laughs> she also mentions that John killed um, John basically killed a guy who who was a warg, and that guy is now in the body of the eagle. Oh, so this Did is a way that? for wargs to live on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I just thought that was really interesting, this idea of wargs living on through the animals that they're possessing at the time. Yeah. Um, and um, and there's a bit of me that thinks, have you ever had somebody's pet take a serious dislike to you? Always seems to happen <laughs> for me with cats. I go into somebody's house and there's a cat there and the cat looks at me and decides that I'm going to die. And I just spend the rest of the visit sort of, Trying to find out some way of getting this fucking beast to leave me alone. I could well believe it being somebody I've wronged in a previous, like, in the cat. Just going, right, I'm going to fucking have you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is very strange, isn't it? What's also interesting about this, as compared to the series, is that um, this guy called Oral, who, uh, who becomes the eagle, um, John doesn't kill him until way later in the series. And um, he actually becomes a bit more of a character than than in this than in the book. I'm just wonder. I'm, I'm not sure why they, they swap that around. But anyway. yeah, no, I wonder about that. So so jo- Johnny's told to prove himself that he that he really has switched sides to kill Corin Halfhand. Yeah. And before John can even make the decision, Corin pretty much makes it for him because he's on him, attacking him yeah. with his sword. Yeah. And and it st- begins this sword fight, which, which John eventually does manage to kill him. But only with the help of of his wolf of ghost, who sort of savages Corin's. I think one of Corin's sort of legs as he's uh, as he's fighting, mm. and that gives John the opening to to kill him. Yeah, yeah. And this, I I liked. If we're sticking with comparisons with the series, I like this much better than the way it was done in the series because it was more believable. Mm. Um, because you get the feeling that John is really brittle here, and he would really struggle to actually carry this out. Um, if Corin's just sort of kneeling in front of him, waiting to die, I'm not mm-hmm. sure John can do it. And mm-hmm. it's just the fact that um, John, in fact, pretty much almost kills him in self-defense, doesn't he? Because yeah. he, if 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 he doesn't fight back here, he's going to die. And and Corin doesn't give John a choice. And I thought it was quite astutely done by a guy who was trying to throw his life away. Yeah, and somebody as hard as Corin as well, who was kind of ranged far and wide and survived everything the North has to throw at him, basically. Mm you know, demands that this 15-year-old kill him. Yeah. And I, I just thought it's this... Because in, in, the, in the series, Corin basically um, winds John up enough to... It looks like he... I mean, there's this, there's this plan to get, get John on the side of the wildlings by having Corin killed. Yeah. But it's almost as if Corin winds John up enough to have him stab him. Yeah. And it just didn't, I didn't really feel that believable to me. And yeah. I, I thought this, this is, this was the only way they could do it, which would actually possibly get the wildlings to believe John's side of things because, yeah. because Corin has that rate, like she has that sort of show of anger and, mm. and genuinely attacks him. Mm. It looks so much more believable, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. And it's so much better than sort of having John in one episode be kind of squeamish about killing Egret, and in the next episode be wound up enough as a prisoner 
that he kills the other guy. It just looks so nakedly like an attempt to kind of ingratiate himself. Whereas in this, mm. in the book, you're right, it makes a lot more sense to me. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we see this exchange once Corrin's dead. Um, they're deciding what to do with John, and Rattleshirt doesn't believe him and wants to, wants to kill him there. And he's the leader, but and, and pretty much you think pretty much anywhere else in Westeros, John's dead here because Rattleshirt's the leader and he wants to kill him. Mm. But um, we get this um, this example of how the free folk operate, which is what the wildlings call themselves, mm. where it's kind of like a little democracy. Mm. Um, enough people disagree with Rattleshirt to to keep John alive. Yeah, and and jo- John even considers this and thinks, "Wow, this is this is really unusual. It's not what I, you know, <laughs> I've never come across this before." And um, it just yeah. it's just really weird because for all the other th- things that sort of the, the wildlings are technologically and uh, various other things behind mm. the rest of Westeros, it seems that they've reached a. Uh, They've reached representative democracy. <laughs> I don't know. He's not necessarily representative, is it? It's so much. It's no. like a barely organised mob. But yeah. um, but I, yeah, I'm bang alongside that. It's nice to see an alternative to you know power being wielded mainly by being rich enough to buy a particularly impressive pair of tights, which is what it seems yeah. to be elsewhere in the land. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I like this a lot better, but it is pretty much just a whole group of people going, kill him, and if you hear him go in a downbeat kind of a way, then he stays alive, and you hear him go in an upbeat sort of a way, then he, then he gets killed, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. There's still definitely a strong line of bar- barbaric action yes. running through this strand of democracy. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah that's very true. Uh, the last thing we hear from this chapter is Mans Raider and the army is already marching towards the wall. They don't have to go back through the Skirling Pass mm. because the army's coming down through it now. So things are moving, wheels are turning, and yeah. you feel this confrontation between the rest of the Night's Watch and the Wildlings is now, is now building to, to something, isn't it? Yeah. So, and and, and I've got to say, I'm excited about that. Oh, massively, yeah. Well, because yeah. this book, as well as being about, you know, the big movements of kings and battles and so on, and, you know, it has also been 95 different ways to go for a walk in Westeros. And if we can actually have some plot <laughs> occurring at some point, I'd be overjoyed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, final chapter of this book, of this run mm. of, uh, game of, of our Game of Thrones coverage, is about Bran. Um, it starts off with Bran as a wolf. Um, and it seems that he's wandering through Winterfell as a wolf. There's death everywhere. Mm. Uh, it's probably worth making the point that we've not been 100% sure that Bran's still alive to this point, have we? Only the fact that Theon looked over the, the battlements and thought, I haven't, you know, these two bodies of children yeah. aren't actually Bran and Rickon. Yeah. But beyond that, we've no idea what's happened to them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Bran wakes up, and it turns out that he's been sort of in the body of the wolf for three days now. And three days, yeah. Um, so when so when um, when when Bran wakes up, Jojen says, "Yeah, it's been three days since you you last, you know, went into his body," and it just shows the the danger of of sort of being addicted to this because I think Bran is getting a bit addicted to being Summer because mm. he's obviously when he's when he's the wolf, he's 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 sort of complete, and when yeah. he's Bran. He's obviously he's still trapped in this body, which is sort of broken. Yeah, and 
Yeah, and he says, Bran says, you know, um, Jojen says you haven't eaten in all that time, and Bran, Bran says, you know, as a wolf has killed these things and eaten, and Jojen's trying to make the point that 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 doesn't sort of count for you, you know. So Bran's mm. sta- been starving for three days, even though yeah. he doesn't realise it. Yeah, um, and it just shows this. But there's a bit of a double-edged sword to this uh, to this power, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, there really is, and it's another thing about. Um, a brand kind of coming into this well gift quote unquote ability thing that he can mm. do um and it's really fortunate that jojen's there otherwise he would he, he just waste away whilst running around as a wolf you know or yeah. presumably would just live as a wolf forever you know if he's yeah. if, if he dies as a human we find out what happened to them they've been hiding in the tombs beneath winterfell so they they did make a run for it originally and then they doubled back and went back into the castle and and then hid in in the tombs so the crypts where um all the the old lords of the, of uh, of the north are buried mm. and that's where they've been that's where they've been hiding out it's basically there's there's Jojen and Mira so the two Kranigmen children yeah. there's Bran uh and Rickon mm. and then there's Hodor and then there's Osha, who's pretty much like some kind of school teacher looking after just his massive group of kids. So <sighs> I don't know what she's thinking as a wild thing. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> like, it's a really interesting thing you must imply about her personality, isn't it? Given that her introduction was as somebody trying to kill um, one of these young boys and now risked so much to keep them alive. And yeah. there's this, you know, I just like it. There's a three-dimensional thing where the, the word wildling becomes less and less appropriate. You know, because yeah. one thing she's not is wild, you know, sort of unmanageable or, or um, uh, unpredictable. You know, she seems to be acting quite selflessly. Yeah. They finally decide to, to go out and take a look around because of of what Bran's seen through his sort of wolf's eyes. Mm. So they, they go back up to the to the surface. It turns out the, the entrance has been blocked somehow by this massive boulder. So Hodor um, does his sort of world's strongest man entry. Oh, it's great. West Ross. I love I love that he psychs himself up by saying the only word he can say. It's just like hodo 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 Yeah. But I mean, credit to him, he manages to get them out and they they they're really lucky that they brought him along because they would have been buried alive without him. Yeah. And they they emerge into this sort of smoky wasteland of what used to be Winterfell. Everything yeah. is rubble and burnt to the ground. Mm. There's only the sort of just the bare walls left. Um, the the first keep is it's interesting. The, the first keep has been ruined, and this is the place where Bran caught Jamie and Cersei. Oh, is it? Um, and he yeah, and that's that's gone to ruin. Mm. And uh, there's there are these really sort of heartbreaking descriptions of the Great Hall, which is is just a rubble now. Uh, Lewin's chambers are gone. There's even a. They even have these sort of almost greenhouses for for growing plants when it's cold, and that's all been smashed apart as well. Mm. And it just feels like such a waste, doesn't it? And again, it's sort of Winterfell almost, as we said before, feels like a character, doesn't it? And this feels like a character completely brought low. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And. Um... And in a way, it's really sobering. Like, you know, it was taken by Theon, who is useless, and it was empty for a long time. You know, this has been a slow decline, but to see it in ruins is something else. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, very sad moment. They come across Maester Lewin in the Godswood. And who he's is still somehow alive. still alive, yeah. 
and there's this there's this kind of mention made of how God's woods sometimes have magical properties to keep people alive for longer, which I thought was a bit. I mean, I thought George Martin was reaching a bit here. But it's a it's a really it's a really nice and really sad scene how he dies sort of and gets some, some last words with Bran and Rickon. Mm. But I thought this was stretching credibility a little bit too far. Yeah. Um, I well, know. I don't. Yeah, I personally, I don't know why you need to go into the um, oh, God's woods have another ability which I've just spoken about just now, which is true all the time, but I've only just mentioned. Um, <laughs> I don't think you really need to get into that. You just say, you know, he crawled away. He's a maester. You know, he's not a combatant. Yeah. Um, so you can just imagine him sort of legging it and getting cut down by somebody who subsequently gets cut down or whatever. There's all sorts of ways where you can have him dying there without it being like, you know, the the magical pharmacy forest. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Um, so Lewin gives them in his final sort of... Because uh, he's been he's been the true father figure to Bran, hasn't he? Since since Bran's real father's left for the South. Mm. And this this is why I think this really hits a chord when, when they're speaking finally. And he gives Osha some instructions as to where to take the boys because um, obviously it's very da- most parts of the north are dangerous. Now, there's only really one way to go, which is further north because mm. the, the Kerwin Castle is pretty much gone, mm. Torrens Square and Moat Cale and all this. You know, it, you, you can't really trust anybody apart from maybe the people further north. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's that's the only route open to them, and he also says maybe split the party. So yeah. because you've got the two heirs to Winterfell here, don't keep them together. Yeah. So at least one of them has a better chance of surviving. So that's yeah. another plan. There's makes one a final. Sorry, go on. I was going to say that ma- that plan makes a lot of sense, and I kind of wish they'd done it in the TV series. I know why they didn't, because then you've got to spend even more time filming where Rickon's at. Um, hmm. But um, it, it has always felt to me like a bum note that in the TV series they just sort of go off wandering around the north together as though yeah. that's not a really stupid strategic move. Yeah. Uh, Mace Lewin sends Bran and Rickon away and asks another favour of Osha in private. Yeah. And we're not, we don't hear what it is. Uh, care to make a guess? Because I don't really know. Oh, it's, it's clearly that she's going to kill him. Like, because doesn't it even say that he's like, I have one more favour for you, and she nods, and doesn't she, like, pick up a stick or something and ah, and then right. tell the boys to go away? Like, I'm fairly That's... certain that he's he's in a great deal of pain, and he's like, look, you've got to finish me off. Yeah. That makes absolute sense, yeah. Because I was... I read this and I was thinking, is this a future thing? Is, is she got <laughs> some extra task which has been given? To... But you're absolutely right, it's not, is it? It's just... Yeah. Like you say, I'm in terrible pain and sort of giving us the mercy of a quick death, really. Yeah, 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 it's true. I mean, I'd like for it to be some sort of secret plan (laughs) masterminded by by Master Lewin, because (laughs) I love Master Lewin, but I think it is, you know, he's in pain and wants to be dead. Yeah. So so the party does split up. Bran and Mira and Jojen and Hodor go off in one direction and Osha just takes Rickon um, and heads off in the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I suppose makes sense. You kind of evenly split the abilities there, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. And the last bit is uh, Bram, as he looks back on Winterfell, he he sees it that it, you know it's an absolute state now. Yeah. But he says that Winterfell, he realizes Winterfell isn't dead; it's just broken, and it gives you a sort of a note of hope at the end. Yeah. But um, it also leaves you. Th- I mean, it left me thinking there are 
there's an increasing list of debts to pay here now. You've got the Boltons, the Greyjoys, yeah. the Lannisters. There's a lot of justice that we'd like to see done, hopefully, in the next book. Fingers yeah. crossed. Yeah, yeah, but what are the odds, really? Like, <laughs> <laughs> You seem you to get, know. in the George Martin book, you seem to get two or three, in, in like an 800-page book, you'll get two or three moments where you're like, yes, that's exactly what should have happened. Good. Well done. And the rest is just like, oh, don't do that. Oh, you did that. Oh, oh George. <laughs> well, that's the, that brings to an end our, um, our coverage of the uh, book of Clash of Kings. Next week, we're, there's no letting up. Next week, we are back in it with uh, the, first, the first part of A Storm of Swords. So if you want to join us for our journey through book three... Uh, which is a storm of swords. You have. Let me. Can you, can you hear? I'm sort of stretching here, trying <laughs> trying to reach the book as I'm desperately trying to work out where they read to. It's a hundred. It's page 122. <laughs> that is correct. Yeah. So. Um, God, you always knew so, that. <laughs> yeah. So, so if you if you're reading along with us for a storm of swords for next time, uh, if you read from the start to if you've got the the, the paperback version, which is split into two books, it's um, page 112. And that means when you get to a chapter about Bran, uh, let me work it out. But yeah, when you get to a chapter about Bran, which begins the ridge slanted slightly from the earth, uh, then <laughs> stop reading. That's We're going to read that section of the book next time. The only other thing to say is if you've got any feedback on the on anything in A Clash of Kings or looking ahead to, to Storm of Swords, Send your comments into sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. That's sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can get us on Twitter. That's at sharkliveroil, Dave. There it is. So, overall thoughts of A Clash of Kings. How, how do you think it compared to the first book? Um, well, I think it was the... The first book's a sort of teaser. It's your first free taste. And as such, it's full of it's full of quite... Um, easily connectable characters and and plots that sort of make sense over a single novel. But now he's gone into this, he's very clearly established that he wants to write a big, long series that is not about any of the things you might have thought it was about. Like, the first book Mm -hmm. felt like it was about the Starks. And while we're still following the Stark kids, it's becoming clearer and clearer to me that it's not... Like, the, the story that George Martin wants to tell isn't about this war because this war isn't over but it's it's it ceased to be this kind of thing that he's following very closely i haven't quite Mm. worked out what story he is that he does want to tell but i know that he tells it with very compelling characters and very good imagery and he's clearly put a lot of thought into the world all Mm. of that said i do think a clash of kings while good had a lot too much walking around in it there was a, there were a lot of characters, several points where you went back to a character who wasn't just on one long trudge from something interesting into something else interesting, and yeah. um, and those moments were of like were an enormous relief because the rest of the time you were just like Arya travelled here, some shit went down. Arya ended up here, some further shit went down. Now moving on, Daenerys travelled here, some shit went down. <laughs> And yeah, you're right. I, I suppose the, the best parts, the best parts I think we've enjoyed the most are things like Tyrion in King's Landing because he's he's static and just dealing with an interesting problem, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, and Blackwater, of course, which is fantastic. And mm. and you know, I, I accept that for Blackwater to happen, people have to travel, armies travel, you know. Um, but uh, and and that was a payoff that was worth it. But I do kind of hope that there's a different plot structure about to happen. 
Um, but, you know, fair enough. You want to explore your world. You want to establish that it's massive. You want to establish that this is going to be a long haul. And I think you've done all of that. I really hope that it, having done that, George Martin builds something on that foundation instead of just going, yep, yeah, this is yet more ways to walk around Westeros. <laughs> Well, fingers crossed. Absolutely, um, absolutely. If there's anybody that can uh, that can pull it off, it's George. So uh, I'm comfortable with that. Right. Well, until next time. Until next uh, enjoy time. Enjoy the man. the first part of uh, of a storm of swords. I certainly will. See you then. left me thinking there are there's a lot of justice that we'd like to see done hopefully in the next book fingers crossed (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, but what are the odds really